Hello my lovelies and welcome back to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and I really hope that you enjoy today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about the unsolved mystery of the Somerton Man or also more famously known after the Persian phrase Tamam Shud. And this unidentified man's body was found on a beach at Somerton Park in South Australia. But who is this unidentified man and how did he end up like this on the beach? Before we get into the case today though, I just want to state that everything I talk about is information I found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode also involves mention of suicide, so if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the unsolved mystery of the Somerton Man. On the 1st of December 1948, about 6.30am, the local police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Park Beach, which is about seven miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. And this man was found lying in the sand across from a children's home, which was on the corner of the Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. And he was actually laying on his back with his head resting against the seawall with his legs extended out with his feet crossed. And at the time, it was believed that this man had died whilst sleeping. Upon further inspection, the police found an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. And after searching his pockets, they revealed a whole host of different items including an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a narrow aluminium comb, which they later found had been manufactured in the USA, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, an army club cigarette packet which contained seven different types of cigarettes, Um, of a different brand to the one that was actually found on his collar and they also found a quarter full box of Bryanton May matches so not quite a lot to go off. There were a few witnesses though who came forward saying that on the evening of the 30th of November they had seen an individual resembling the man who was found on the beach laying in the same position and in the same spot. A couple who had seen him at around 7pm claimed they saw him extend his right arm out, like really extend it to the maximum, and then dropped it limply, which seemed a bit odd at the time. Another couple who saw him between 7.30 and 8, during which time the streetlights had turned on, they said that they didn't see him move at all during that half an hour, although they did have the impression that his position had slightly changed. And these witnesses did mention at the time that they thought it was slightly strange that he wasn't reacting to the mosquitoes around him, like he wasn't trying to swat them away or was even flinching at them. And, you know, they are very annoying. But they just assumed that he was either drunk or in a deep sleep. So they didn't go down to him to investigate more, you know, to make sure that he was okay. One of the other witnesses told police that she had observed a man looking down to the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led to the beach. Which, I mean, I guess that it could just be some random man checking, you know, if he'd already seen the man from a different angle, if you know what I mean. You know, he could just be leaning over and checking. But he just kind of leaned over as if he knew where and why to look, which I guess you could argue that's a bit strange, but then again, it could just be a bit of a coincidence. So eventually, a pathologist named John Burton Cleland examined the body, and he said that this man was of, quote, Britisher appearance, end quote, so I'm guessing that means that he was British, and he was also thought to be around 40 to 45 years old, but he was still in top physical condition. The man was about 5 foot 11, had grey eyes and fair to ginger coloured hair, although he was slightly grey around the temple. He had broad shoulders but a narrow waist, whilst his hands and nails showed no sign of manual labour. 
But the most interesting was his feet and his big and little toes met in a wedge-like shape which is most common with dancers or somebody who wore shoes with the pointed, you know, pointed shoes like pointed at the toe. And he had very pronounced calf muscles which again it consisted with somebody who dances or, you know, wears shoes that have a slight heel on them. The man was wearing a white shirt with a red, white and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes and a brown knitted pullover with a fashionable grey and brown double breasted jacket of reportedly, quote, American tailoring. And bizarrely though, all the labels had been removed from his clothes and he wasn't wearing a hat, which was a very common thing to wear in the 1940s. He also didn't have a wallet on him either, which police found rather suspicious. So at this point, all we have is this smart, clean-shaven mystery man with no identification and even with dental records, he still wasn't identified, which led police to believe that he had maybe committed suicide. But there are a lot of strange circumstances in this case. We need to find out more about who this man is and what really happened. An autopsy could give us some clues. It could tell us a bit more and it could maybe show us how and why this person died. You know, whether it was natural causes or whether it was something a little bit more sinister. So an autopsy was indeed conducted and the pathologist was able to estimate the time of death which was around 2am on December 1st. And I'm just going to walk you through the original findings of the autopsy. Even if they don't have um, huge significance, I think it's just good for you guys to kind of know all the facts and what was found. So it was first found that his heart was of a normal size... So it was just normal in every way, his heart was fine. There were small vessels not commonly seen in the brain and they were easily visible, but they had a lot of congestion. And there was also congestion in the pharynx, which is, in the most basic terms, a person's throat. And the esophagus was covered with whitening of superficial layers of mucus with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. And his stomach again was also deeply congested and in the second half of the duodenum, duodenum, which is found in the small intestine. Also to mention, which I think is maybe the most concerning part, is in his stomach there was a lot of blood mixed in with the food that was still in his stomach. And his liver contained great excess of blood in its vessels as well. His spleen was also really large, about three times the size that it actually should have been. And let me tell you, (laughs) I have had an inflamed and very large spleen and liver and it was extremely painful. So if this was happening whilst he was alive, I really do feel sorry for him because it really hurts. And just to finish off the list, um, there was destruction of the centre of the liver lobules acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver, spleen and of the brain. Okay, so I know that was a lot, but I do, it does help the pathologist get a deeper understanding of what this man's body went through before he died. So now we've spoken about it, what did the pathologist think to all this? Does he think that this was of natural causes or again, is it something else? So, the autopsy showed that the man's last meal was in fact a pasty, which was eaten about three hours before his death, but tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. The pathologist, Dr Dwyer, said, quote, I am quite confident the death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic, end quote. So although poisoning remained a prime suspicion, the pasty was not believed to be the source. Other than that though, the coroner wasn't able to reach a final conclusion as to the man's identity and also the cause of death or whether the man seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of the 30th was actually even the same man because, well, nobody saw his face so it could have been a complete different person. 
and on 10th of December 1948, the mystery man's body was embalmed after the police were unable to get a positive identification. Police said this was the first time they knew that such action was needed. On the 14th of January 1949, staff at the Adelaide Railway Station came across a brown suitcase that had all its labels removed. I mean, it does sound slightly familiar. And this suitcase had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11am on the 30th of November 1948. And it was believed at the time that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. So, you may be wondering, what were the contents of this suitcase? And luckily, I can tell you exactly that. So, there was a red checked dressing gown in a size 7, a pair of red felt slippers, four pairs of underwear, pyjamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into like a short sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with a sharpened point, a small square of zinc though to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife or scissors, that's what it was thought to have been, and a stenciling brush which was commonly used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargoes. So really quite an eclectic mix if you ask me, quite a, um, well, unusual, really. Also worth a mention, though, is that in the suitcase, there was also a thread card of, like, Barber brand orange waxed thread of a unusual type that was not available in Australia at the time, and it was actually found it was the same thread used to repair the lining in a pocket of the trousers that the man was wearing. And again, all identification marks on the clothes had been removed. However, police did find a name that was T. Keen on a tie. They found Keen, again, on a laundry bag and Keen on an undershirt, but it was spelled slightly differently. And they also found three dry cleaning marks, which was basically three separate sequences of numbers. So with all this maybe evidence and information that the police had found, what did they actually make from this? Because honestly, I would not even know where to start. The police believed that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked the last three items or purposefully left the Keen tags on the clothes, knowing that Keen was probably not the man's name. However, with wartime rationing still enforced and clothing was sometimes difficult to get at the time, although it is very common to use name tags, it was also common when buying second-hand clothing to remove the tags of the previous owner. But what police did find really strange was that there were no spare socks and no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused letter stationery, like they were kind of maybe expecting some sort of note or something, but there wasn't. Um, A search was also conducted to see if T. Keen was missing in any English-speaking country. However, this was to no avail. They couldn't find anybody. There was also a nationwide circulation of the dry cleaning marks because they can be different in different countries. But this again proved to be pretty pointless and nothing really came from it. Realistically, the only information that could actually be taken from the suitcase was the fact that it had been manufactured in America and that the coat had not been imported, which meant that the man had either been to the US or had bought the coat from somebody of a similar size who had been. So police also checked incoming train records and believed that the man had arrived at the Adelaide railway station by an overnight train from one of three places, which were Melbourne, Sydney and Port Augusta. They thought that he had showered and shaved at the city baths, even though there was no ticket for this found on the body. 
and they thought he did this before returning to the train station to purchase a ticket for the 10.50am train to Henley Beach, which for whatever reason he missed or did not catch. It's then speculated that he checked his suitcase at the station cloakroom before leaving the station and catching a bus to Glenelg. However, when I was researching this, um, more so about the city baths, although it was named city baths, the centre wasn't actually a public bathing facility. It was more of a public swimming pool and the railway station did actually have bathing facilities and this was located across from the cloakroom which is on the south exit of the station whereas the city baths was all the way out of the north exit like out of the station so I'm not really sure why he chose to go there and not the facilities in the actual station especially if it was across from the cloakroom because that's where police thought that he went after and there's no actual record that the station's facilities were closed or unavailable on that day so I guess we'll never know but I just thought that was probably worth a mention um I thought it was quite interesting An inquest into the man's death was commenced a few days following the discovery of the body by Coroner Thomas Cleland, but this was adjourned, or suspended in other words, until the 17th of June the following year. And Cleland actually decided to re-examine the body, and he actually made a number of new discoveries. He noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean, and even appeared to have been polished recently, which conflicted the thought that the man had been wandering around all day. And he also added that this evidence fit with the theory that the body may have been brought to Somerton Beach after the man's death, which also would account for the lack of evidence, you know, like vomiting or convulsions, which are the two main reactions to poison. Because remember, at this point, they thought that this man may have been poisoned, and obviously there was no sick at the crime scene, so yeah, that would account for that. He also speculated that as none of the witnesses could positively identify the man they saw the previous night as the same person discovered the next morning, it was possible, again, that the man had died somewhere else and dumped. But he stressed that this was purely speculation, only as all the witnesses really did believe that it was the same person that they saw. You know, the body was in the same place and lying in the same distinctive position but unfortunately, he still couldn't find any evidence indicating the identity of the man. Cedric Stanton Hicks, who is a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that of a group of drugs, a variant of a drug in that he called number one, and in particular number two, were extremely toxic in relatively small oral doses that would be extremely difficult, I mean, if not impossible, to identify. He gave Cleland a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which was entered as Exhibit C18. The names weren't actually released to the public until 1980, as at the time they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual. Um, from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase, which is crazy to think. I mean, the fact that these two drugs were so deadly, yet so readily available. It's great. I mean, I literally get ID'd for buying paracetamol. Do you know what I mean? Just anyway. So the names of these drugs, like I said, were eventually made public and they were called Digitalis, Digitalis and Eubane? Eubane? It's Albane. I just googled it because (laughs) I didn't want to embarrass myself and I'm still going to embarrass myself because there's still a lot of words that I cannot pronounce. So anyway, so these two drugs were what is known as a cardinalide type cardiac glycoside, if you want to be fancy. So just to break that big sciencey name for you, so a cardinalide is a type of steroid and cardiac glycoside 
increases the output force of a person's heartbeat and decreases its rate of contractions. And it's actually a drug that's used medically to treat things like heart failure and cardiac arrhythmias, but as we already know, they can be very deadly and very hard to pronounce. So this Professor Hicks noted that the only fact, so to speak, uh, not found in relation to the body was, again, evidence of vomiting, because there wasn't any at the scene. He stated that its absence was not unknown, but that he could not make, quote, a frank conclusion, end quote, without it. So he also said that if the death had occurred seven hours after the man was last seen move, then that would suggest a massive dose that could still have been detectable. And we do know that movement was seen by a witness at 7pm, which realistically could have been a convulsion before he died. So now in the early days of the inquiry, Cleland said, quote, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside and it was not accidentally administered, but I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person, end quote. But even with all these findings, they still couldn't figure out a solid reason as to why this man died. And after the inquest, they actually made a plaster cast of the man's head and shoulders. The fact that they couldn't determine the identity or the cause of death of this man led authorities to call it, quote, an unparalleled mystery, end quote. And they believed that the cause of death might never be known. However, stay where you are because there is another twist to this case with another of what could be the strangest piece of evidence yet. Around the same time as the inquest, a tiny piece of paper rolled up was found in a fob pocket sewn within the dead man's trousers. And on this piece of paper were the words, Tamam should. But what does this mean? And how can it have any significance to what is already turning into a cold case? Public library officials were quickly called in to translate the text, but they said that the text was a phrase meaning ended or finished, and it was found on the last page of a book called Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which is the title that Edward Fitzgerald gave to his 1959 translation from Persian to English of a selection of poems attributed to Omar Khayyam, who was once known as the, quote, Ostromina Poet of Persia, end quote. However, on the other side of this piece of paper, it was just blank, so police were a little bit lost with this new information, like it seemed like they had so much but so little at the same time. But they started an Australian-wide search to try and find the copy of the book that had a similar blank page by releasing a photograph of the scrap of paper to the press. And somehow, lo and behold, after this appeal, the copy of the book from which the page had been torn out was actually located. Um, A man showed police a 1914 edition of the book that was published by Whitcomb and Tombs in Christchurch, New Zealand. And this man had not even considered that the book might have been connected to the case until he had seen an article in a newspaper. Detective Sergeant Lionel Leanne, who led the investigation, often protected the privacy of witnesses in public statements by using pseudonyms. So she referred to this man as Ronald Francis, and he has never formally been identified. However, there is some uncertainty about the circumstances in which the book was found, as one newspaper refers to the book being found about a week or two before the body was actually found. You know, whether this was just down to human error, you know, printing the wrong date, or whether it's true, I don't know. But former South Australian police detective Jerry Feltus, who dealt with the case when it was a cold case, reported that the book was found, quote, just after that man was found on the beach, end quote. 
Um, the timing is significant as the man is presumed, based on the suitcase, to have just arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. So if the book was found one or two weeks before, I guess that would suggest that the man had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for a longer time period. And most accounts state that the book was found in an unlocked car parked in Jetty Road, Glenelg. So either in the back footwell or on the back seat. And if you remember, that was the place that the police think the man had visited before his death. I'm hope you're keeping up. Um, it's quite complicated, but I'm trying. I'm trying the best I can. Okay. <laughs> Going into a bit more depth about the actual book itself is the main theme was that a person should live life to the fullest and just have no regrets when your life does come to an end. So the poem subject kind of led police to theorise that the man might have actually committed suicide by poison, but there was no other evidence that would really corroborate this theory. So, we know that the book was missing the last words Tamam should, and that was on the last page, and we know that the other side of that was blank, and microscopic tests indicated that the piece of paper was actually from the page torn from the book, so it was a match, these two things matched. However, in the back um, of the found book, there were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters with the second line seemingly struck out like a line through it which is considered to be significant because of its similarities to the fourth line and the possibility that it represents an error within that sequence so the line of text was like so like imagine the password on the back of your wi-fi box like imagine that but without numbers so just like a bunch of random capital letters basically and there are actually pictures on google if you do want to have a look at it you know i think it's worth a look it is worth a look it might maybe help you understand what i'm trying to talk through but for now i'm just gonna have to try and describe it as best as i can so looking at the text the first line begins with an m or a w but it's a little bit unclear which one it is, but it is widely believed to be a W, as there's distinctive differences when you actually compare it to other clear M's. So you can kind of tell them apart. The second line is the line that appears to be crossed out or even maybe underlined, and that has the letters M-L-I-A-O-I. And although the last character, the I, looks like it could be an L, but if you look if you look closely at it, the underlying cross-out thing kind of cuts underneath the I that makes it look a bit like an L, but I think it definitely is an I. <laughs> One more significance, though, is that on the fourth line, there is an X above the letter O, and nobody really knows what this could mean like it's not crossed out like the letter o isn't crossed out it's like a little x above it as if like whoever wrote it was like marking something of significance not really sure but thankfully there were some attempts to decode this text initially the letters were thought to be words in a foreign language before it was actually realized that it was a code Um, This is when code experts were called in at the time to try and decipher the lines, but unfortunately they were unsuccessful as well. In 1978, after a request from ABC Television's journalist Stuart Littlemore, cryptographers from the Department of Defence analysed the text. And they reported that it would be ultimately impossible to provide a satisfactory answer. I mean, if the text was an encrypted message, the fact that it's so short and the fact that it had, quote, insufficient symbols, end quote, from which a clear meaning could be taken from it just meant that it could all just be meaningless and a product of, what they said, a disturbed mind. Like this might not be a code at all, it could just be a bunch of random letters, really. 
However, in 2004, retired detective Jerry Feltus suggested in a Sunday Mail article that the final line could stand for the initials of, quote, it's time to move to South Australia, Mosley Street, end quote. And keep this in mind, Mosley Street, keep it in mind, trust me, it does have some sort of significance in the end. So in 2009 to 2011, Derek Abbott's team concluded that it was most likely that each letter was the first letter of a word, and a 2014 analysis by computational computational linguist um, John Rellings, he strongly supports this theory that the letters consist of the initials of some English text but finds no match for these in a large survey of literature and concludes that the letters were likely written as a form of shorthand as suspected and not in fact a code. They also said again that it will likely never properly be solved. A telephone number was also found in the back of the book and the number belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson who lived, any guesses, on Mosley Street in Glenelg and this was about 400 metres north of the location where the body was found. So the police interviewed her and she said that she did not know the dead man or why he would have her phone number or chose to visit her suburb on the night of his death. However, on a later date, sometime in 1948, she reported that an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and asked a neighbour about her. And, I mean, it could be a weird coincidence, or again, it could be something more that she's not telling the police. So Jerry Feltus stated that when he interviewed Thompson in 2002, he found that... She was either being evasive or she just didn't really want to talk about it. Feltus thought that she knew the Somerton man's identity and not only him but Thompson's daughter, Kate, said in a television interview in 2004 that she also believed that her mother did in fact know the dead man. In 1949, Thompson requested that the police did not keep a permanent record of her name or release her personal details to third parties, and she asked of this because she thought that it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation if she was linked to the case. And the police did eventually agree to this, and it would hinder later investigations. So because of this, in the news media, books and you know other discussions of the case, Thompson was frequently referred to various pseudonyms, including the nickname Jeston and other names such as Teresa Johnson. And in 2010, three years after Thompson had sadly passed away, Feltus claimed that he was given permission by her family to disclose her name of that of her and her husband, who was called Prosper. And Feltus also stated that her family did not know of her connection with the case and he agreed not to disclose her identity or anything that might reveal it. Thompson's name was considered important because it may have been the key to solving the code, maybe, on the paper. She could have hit, she could have had real significant value to the case, but obviously got to respect her wishes. So, remembering back a little bit, Um, previously in the case when I mentioned that a plaster cast was made of the man's head and shoulders. Well, Thompson was actually shown this plaster cast and she said, again, that she could not identify the person. However, according to a detective, um, he described her reaction when seeing the cast as, quote, completely taken back to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint, end quote. And also to note that in an interview many years later, Paul Lawson, the actual technician who made the cast, was also present when Thompson viewed it. And he said that after she looked at the cast, she immediately looked away and would not look again. And some may say that this reaction is strange, but then again, you know, you can never... Not the same... Not every person reacts the same. You know, so it is hard to kind of deter whether it meant that she was lying about something or whether it was just her reaction. 
Thompson also said that whilst working at the Royal North Shaw Hospital in Sydney during World War II, she had owned a copy of the book, and in 1945 at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she said that she had given it to an Australian army lieutenant named Alf Boxall, who was serving in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers at the time. And she told the police that after the war had ended, she had moved to Melbourne and got married. And she also said that she had received a letter from Boxall and had replied telling him that she was now married, but there is no evidence to, to suggest that Boxall had had any contact with Thompson after 1945. And after talking to Thompson about this experience, they suspected that Boxall was potentially deceased. However, in July 1949, um, he was actually found in Sydney and he still had the book with the final page still intact. And he wasn't aware of any link between the mystery man and himself. And in fact, in the front page of the copy of this book, Thompson had signed it herself with the name Jeston and had written out um, verse 70, which was a poem. After many, many years of this man being unidentified, I mean, surely there must have been some possible identifications or possible identifications. And in fact, there were quite a few. So on the 2nd of December 1948, a newspaper called The Advertiser first mentioned the case in a small article saying that the body was believed to be that of the man named E.C. Johnson. But the next day, Johnson identified himself to the police station, so he was very quickly ruled out to be the Somerton man. On that same day, the news published a photograph of the mystery man on its front page to hopefully prompt people to call in, which did in fact lead to multiple calls from members of the public about his possible identity. And by the 4th of December, police had announced that the man's fingerprints were not on South Australians' police records, which in turn just forced police to look broader. And one day um, after this, on the 5th, the advertiser reported that police were searching through military records after a man claimed to have a drink with a person who resembled the Somerton man in a hotel in Glenelg on the 13th of November. So during this drinking session, this mystery man apparently produced a military pension card with the man... um, a man named Solomonson on it, that was the name on this pension card. In early January 1949, two people identified the body of that of 63-year-old former woodcutter Robert Walsh. And then a third person, who was called James Mack, also saw the body but could not at the time identify it. However, an hour later, he contacted the police and made a claim that he thought it was Walsh as well. And Mac stated that the reason he couldn't confirm this at the viewing was because there was a difference in hair colour. And Walsh had left Adelaide several months earlier to buy sheep in Queensland, but failed to return at Christmas as planned. Police were, I guess you could say, sceptical, as they believed Walsh to be too old to be the Somerton man. However, they did say that the body was consistent with that of a person who had been a woodcutter, although the state of the man's hands showed that he probably hadn't cut for at least 18 months. Remember, his hands were really clean. Um, So any thoughts of this positive identification had very quickly been proven wrong. In fact, by early February 1949, there had been eight different possible positive identifications of the body. And this included two Darwin men who thought the body was one of their friends. Others thought it was a missing station worker and also a worker on a steamship and also a Swedish man. But detectives from Victoria initially believed that the man was from this area due to the very similar laundry marks to those used by several dry cleaning firms in Melbourne. 
And after the photograph was published in Victoria, a further 28 people claimed to know this man. However, surprise, surprise, all of these were disproved and detectives said that other investigations suggested that it was pretty unlikely that this man was from Victoria. So, you know, it was just kind of all over the shop, really. Amongst the identity claims was a seaman named Tommy Reed, but following his shipmate's viewing of the body, this again was just a flop. Like, there was so much, yet so little, and I guess it would just be so frustrating at this point. Just so frustrating. However, another twist in the case, and as you can already tell, there are a lot of twists in this case. So current reports actually considered the connection with the death of a two-year-old that happened six months later. On June 6th, 1949, the body of two-year-old Clive Magnusson was found in a sack in the Largs Bay Sandhills about 12 miles up the coast from Somerton Park, and lying next to him was his unconscious father, Keith, who was taken to hospital in a very weak condition and following a medical examination, he was actually transferred to a mental hospital. It was found that the Magnussons had been missing for four days and believed that young Clive had been dead for at least 24 hours before his body was found. But an interesting note, though, is they were found by a man named Neil McRae, who claimed he had seen the location of the two in a dream the night before, which I guess you could say is interesting. Um, the coroner couldn't actually determine how Clive had died. However, it was thought that it wasn't due to natural causes, so it could have been something more sinister. Following the death of the boy, um, the boy's mother, Roma, reported that she had been threatened by a masked man who was driving a battered cream car. And she said that this man almost ran her over outside her own home. And she also stated that, quote, The car stopped and a man with a khaki handkerchief over his face told her to keep away from the police or else. End quote. As well as this, a similar looking man had recently been seen lurking outside the house and Roma believed that this situation could have been related to her husband's attempt to identify the Somerton man and he thought that it was a man called Carl Thompson who was a former colleague of his. And after Roma spoke with the police, she actually collapsed and required medical attention and... I guess she was probably so stressed. I mean, she's just lost her baby boy. And then obviously this man's come and harassed her. You know, I'm not surprised. She was probably feeling so many different emotions. J.M. Goer, a secretary for the Lags North Progress Association, received an anonymous phone call threatening that Mrs. Magnusson um, would meet with an accident if he interfered. Also, A.H. Curtis, the acting mayor of Port Adelaide, received three anonymous phone calls threatening an accident if he, quote, stuck his nose into the Magnuson affair, end quote. However, police suspected the call may have just been a hoax and the caller may have been the same person who also terrorised a woman in a nearby suburb who had sadly recently lost her husband in tragic circumstances. I mean, it's just sick that some people think that's okay. You know, taking maybe advantage or, you know, just scaring people that are in situations that you can't even imagine happening to yourself. In 1949, the body of the Somerton man was buried in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery where the Salvation Army conducted the service. And years after his burial, flowers began to appear on his grave. And the police actually questioned a woman that was seen leaving the cemetery, but she claims that she knew nothing of the man. However, at around the same time, a receptionist from the Strathmore Hotel opposite the railway station, and she was named Ina Harvey, 
she revealed that a strange man had stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the same time of the man's death and she said that he checked out on November 30th, 1948. She remembered that this man was English-speaking and carried only a small black case, kind of similar to what a musician or a doctor might carry. And when an employee looked inside the case, he told Harvey that he had found an object inside the case that he could only describe as looking like some sort of needle which is a little bit strange. On another note though, um, another suspected cause of death came about in 1994 by John Harbour Phillips, who was the Chief Justice of Victoria and Chairman of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. And he reviewed the case in order to try and determine a cause of death, and he concluded that there seems to be little doubt that it was that drug, uh, did digitalis. <laughs> there we go again. And this is a type of poisoning which normally occurs when a person either takes too much of the medication or eats a plant like foxglove that contains a similar substance. This claim was also supported by pointing out that the man's organs were engorged which is consistent with that drug. The South Australian Police Historical Society holds the plaster cast which still contains strands of the man's hair. Um, Any further attempts to identify the body have been hampered by the embalming, um, what is it, formaldehyde? I think that's what they used to embalm. And, you know, so this substance has um, destroyed a lot of the man's DNA. But even weirdly, other key pieces of evidence just no longer exist. Like um, the small brown suitcase, that was actually destroyed in 1986. And multiple witness statements have also disappeared from police files over the years. Which, you know, they could have been misplaced. But in a case so big as this one, I do find that a bit hard to believe. It almost seems like maybe someone was trying to cover it up, but then again, I don't know why. It all just seems a little bit weird, if you ask me. So after all of that information, I'm going to talk through a few different theories as to who the Somerton man could be because again like with any big case there are speculation and theories so I'm firstly going to talk about one of the most famous theories surrounding this case which is the speculation that the Somerton man was actually a spy and it is known that there were at least two different sites relatively close to Adelaide that were of high interest to spies at the time and these were the Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Wamira Test Range, which was a military research facility. And the man's death also coincided with a reorganisation of the Australian security agencies, which could culminate the following year with the founding of Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. Bit of a mouthful, but we'll get there. This next bit that I'm going to talk about is kind of to do with the spy theory, but kind of not. Like, when I kind of read it, I was a little bit confused, but it does have to do with Boxall, which is the man with the other book who knew Jessica. So, Boxall was apparently involved in intelligence work during and immediately after World War II, and he did an interview in 1978 with Stuart Littlemore, and Littlemore asks him, quote, Mr. Boxall, you had been working, hadn't you, in an intelligence unit before you met this young woman. Did you talk to her about that at all? End quote. And he is referring to Jessica. And Boxall replies no. And when asked if Harkness could have known Boxall, um, he says, not unless somebody else told her. End quote. When... 
Little Mars suggests in the interview that there may have been an espionage connection to the dead man. Boxall replies, quote, It's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? End quote. So Boxall's army service records suggests that he served initially in the 4th Water Transport Company before being second to the North Australia Observer Unit, which is in fact a special operations unit. So yeah, that was a little bit confusing to me, but I think I'm going to talk about it a little bit further on, and you'll probably understand the connection with Jessica. Um, Obviously Jessica, Boxall knew each other, Boxall could have been some special operations guy, could have known this dead man, and yeah, in a little bit I will try and connect all the dots. Just bear with me. Another worthy theory to mention is the H.C. Reynolds theory. So in 2011, an Adelaide woman contacted biological anthropologist Henberg about an identification card of a man named H.C. Reynolds, and she found this in her father's possessions. And the card, which was a document issued in the US to foreign seamen during World War One, was given to Henberg in October for comparison of the ID photo to that of the Somerton man. So they were just trying to compare it to the man, see if it fit. And even though Henberg found, you know, some sort of similarities in the features, such as his nose, his lips and eyes, he believed that they were not as reliable as the close similarity of the ear. So the ear shapes shared by both men were a fairly good match. However, Henberg found something that he called a unique identifier. And this was a mole on the cheek that was the same shape in the same position in both photographs. He said, quote, Together with the similarity of the ear characteristics, this mole in a forensic case, this would allow me to make a rare statement positively identifying the Somerton man, end quote. And in fact, if you want to um, have a look online, you can actually Google pictures of the ears, if that tickles your fancy. Um, And it does kind of give you a good reference as to what this man was looking at and the characteristics that you know, they both share. So I would definitely recommend going and having a look at that. So this ID card was issued in the US on the 28th of February 1918 to, again, H.C. Reynolds, giving his nationality as British and his age as 18. Searches conducted failed to find any records relating to this man. Some independent researchers believed that the card belonged to a man named Horace Charles Reynolds, who was a Tasmanian man. However, it was found that this man died in 1953. Therefore, it isn't at all possible to be the Somerton man. So finally, jumping back to the Thompson family, after Jessica and Prosper passed away, three of their relatives actually gave interviews to the Channel 9 Current Affairs programme, 60 Minutes, in November 2013. So Kate, the daughter of Jessica and Prosper, said that her mother was the woman who interviewed, um, was interviewed by the police, and that her mother had told her that she had lied to them. So apparently Jessica had told her daughter that she did in fact lie to the police. And so Thompson did apparently know the identity of the Somerton man and also that his identity was, quote, known to a higher level than the police force, end quote. Kate actually suggested that her mother and the Somerton man may have both been spies. I told you, I told you I'd connect the dots. And she noted that Thompson had taught English to migrants and was interested in communism and could also speak Russian, but never actually told Kate, you know, why she'd learnt it or how she learnt it. Like, there wasn't any real indication of why she knew this, but, you know, some people just like to learn languages. You know, I've got nothing against that, but, you know, with all this evidence, it she could have been a spy, we don't know. Roma Egan, the widow of Thompson's son Robin, and Roma's daughter Rachel, also appeared in this interview. 
and they suggested that the Somerton man was actually Robin's father, therefore Rachel's granddad. And the Egans reported lodging a new application with the Attorney General, John Rao, to have the summer man's body exhumed and DNA tested. Abbott also wrote that Rao, in support of the Egans, saying that by doing this, it would be a consistent with it would be consistent with federal government policy of identifying soldiers in war graves. You know, this wasn't a new thing; like it is something that happens. However, not everybody was happy with this decision. I mean, Kate really didn't want this to happen and she thought that it was disrespectful to the man. Like, so much had happened, he'd been through so much. She thought that they should just let him lie peacefully. And, you know, I do kind of agree with it, but, you know, I suppose they wanted to find out if this was true. But, I don't know, maybe they should have left it, maybe, you know. I don't, I don't really have an opinion, you know, that's up to them. And in fact, it wasn't just Kate who wasn't a fan of this idea. I mean, two years prior, in October 2011, Rao had apparently already refused to exhume the body. He said, quote, There needs to be public interest reasons that go well beyond public curiosity or broad scientific interest, end quote. But in October 2019, Attorney General Vicky Chapman granted approval for his body to be exhumed to extract DNA for analysis. And the parties interested in this analysis actually agreed to cover the costs. So a potential granddaughter's DNA was planned to be compared to the unknown man to see if it was in fact a match. This was carried out on 19th of May 2021, 2021, and when the body was actually exhumed, it was reported that the remains were in reasonable condition and were fairly positive about DNA recovery. Dr. Anne Coxon said, quote, The technology available to us now is clearly light years ahead of the techniques available when this body was discovered in the late 1940s, end quote and that the tests would, quote, use every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery, end quote. On the 26th of July, 2022, so literally this year, Abbott announced that he and a genealogist, Colleen Fitzpatrick, had determined that this mystery man was actually um, Charles Webb who was an electrical engineer and instrument maker born on November 16th, 1905 in Melbourne. And Abbott claimed his DNA identification from strands found in the plaster cast, which was made in the 1940s, and also through genetic genealogy matches, were found for the descendants of two first cousins of Webb, both on the paternal and maternal side, which indicates a very high likelihood that the Somerton man was either Webb himself or possibly a brother. And this next bit actually blew my mind a little bit when I first read it because, I mean, when I first came across this case, it was a few years ago and obviously at that time he was still classed as a unidentified man but this bit, it just, it clicks. It absolutely clicks the pieces together, in my eyes anyway. Okay, so Webb had resided in Victoria and he had a brother-in-law named, just wait for it, Thomas Keane. Okay, has it clicked yet? So Keane actually only lived about 20 minutes away from him, which would explain the name on some of them clothes linked to the Somerton man. Remember them clothes that were found in the suitcase type thing and they had T. Keane on it crazy right and there's also no death records for Webb at all like his last known records date back to like April 1947 and that was after he left his wife Dorothy and by 1951 Dorothy was apparently living in Butte South Australia which was about 144 kilometers from Adelaide According to Abbott, Webb had possibly tried to track her down and research also indicates that Webb loved to bet on horses, which could explain the coded text 
people seem to think that that coded text could have been horse names or something related to his horse betting. It was also found that Webb was also very fond of poetry and had actually written some of his own, so this could also explain the copy of the poem book. However, none of his relatives that are still living, anyway, have actually known him in person, so there aren't any pre-death photographs of it, which I guess is a little bit of a shame, but there is a photo of Webb's brother, Roy, and this has surfaced, and it's claimed that it resembles the Somerton Man, and I actually did Google it, and I think I came across it, wasn't too sure, but it does look like him, it really, really does, and, you know, it's just such a crazy story, and to think that This year, 2022, after all that time of this man being unidentified, it has pretty much come full circle and we know who it is. I think that is just absolutely amazing and I know that it's been such a hard case today, but there's just too much information and I wanted to make sure that you guys got as much of this information as you possibly could to try and understand the case a bit better. And with all of that information up to present day, that concludes today's episode. And like I said, it's very long and confusing, but thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed and I do hope to have you back for another Primed for Crime episode. However, in the meantime, if you are still craving for a bit more true crime, then you can head over to the Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily and it's nice to be able to interact with you guys you know see what cases you'd like me to cover what you're liking what you're not liking so yeah please be vigilant and stay safe everybody and I will see you next week for another case see you later